Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral's Light, show number 123. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is, yes, fine and dandy. We have a show, what a show. She's not as hefty as last week's show, but we have a, a fantastic show lined up. And again, I just want to, you know, some people came to that show and last week's show, it was three hours long. Do you know what I mean? And that is some awesome show. So I honestly, a hats off and apologise if anyone was a little bit, you know, <laughs> took up all their little iPod room there with that show. But to be quite honest, I've had... A number of emails, which was and on the forums as well, which was saying that was one of the best shows Starship Sova has ever done, which is so brilliant news. You know what I mean? Because, like I say, I knew it was going to be a big show because I knew that story was a, a right length as well. And I always want to make sure I get some big stories on there as well, not just to give you like the kind of the twenty minute, the half hour stories. I want something with a bit of depth in there as well. But didn't realise that, you know, that depth was going to sink to three hours. So again, if that, you know, did upset anybody, I really do apologise for that. But I'm quite happy with the, the feedback I've had because, you know, it seems that that show in particular has been one of the highlights of Starship Sova. And the artwork went down nicely, you know, the stories, the narrations. So I'm really pleased the way it's turned out and comments that came through. Thank you very much. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. Today's show is the then and now. I've changed the title again because old school, new school wasn't really, didn't really sit well with me. So it's now called then and now. And it's again, it's the same principle. We've got one of the big writers from past times up against one of the kind of new, hot new writers. And there'll be a poll on the site and there'll be a poll in the forums, you know, so please come along, you know, just I mean, as a just general lighthearted experiment which one do you prefer i'm going to give in a second or two i'll give you the announcement of the winners of last month's show you know it was evolution by john w campbell up against not work by nina kariki hoffman so and it's went down you know like i say again loads of nice comments about that as well so what's coming in today's show we have guest editorial by jason sanford we have this month's explained in 60 seconds by megan argo we have a little intro into Snatch Me Another by the writer Mercurio Rivera. Then we jump straight into the fiction Snatch Me Another by Mercurio Rivera. Then we have Amy H. Sturgis with looking back into science fiction genre history. Next up, I've got a little intro by Larry Santuro about C.M. Kornbluth and The Adventurer. Then it is that main fiction, The Adventurer by C.M. Kornbluth. There's two fine narrations today as well. One by Larry Santuro and one by Liz Majeski. 
they are just excellent. You know, they really bring you into the story. You know what I mean? And I know you'll just kind of just be lost with these two stories. Fantastic. And I think it's actually this one's a hard one to pick. But hey, <laughs> step away from the mic, Tony. I don't want to put any thoughts into your head. Going to give you now the results of last month's competition. Like I said there, just in the intro, Nina Kariki Hoffman with her not work up against the legend, which is John W. Campbell Jr. with his evolution. And the winner was Nina Kariki Hoffman. 62% voted for Nina's story, up against 37% for John W. Campbell. So the legend that is John W. Campbell did not come nowhere near to Nina Kariki Hoffman. You know, two great stories, but Nina Kariki Hoffman's came out on top. Will that be the same this month? Who can tell? But like I say, please, you've got to kind of vote, you know what I mean? So that's the only way that we're going to know that. Please do vote again. Link on the front of the website. That John W. Campbell one and a Nina Kariki Hoffman poll. That one's closed now, it's finished. So all your votes now will be on this story. Or these two stories. I hope you will come along and take part. Uh, like I say, it's just for a bit of fun. Just to, you know, which one kind of stands up the test of time. Do the old ones stand up? Or do these young books, these new writers that are coming in, take all the glory? First up is a guest editorial by Jason Sanford. And before I actually even play Jason's editorial, I just want to hold my hand up and apologise to Cheryl Morgan and John Clymer, editor for Electric Velocipede. Jason sent over this guest editorial a few days ago. And, you know, it was my mistake. I listened to it. I didn't even cotton on. Do you know what I mean? Jason had gotten a number of facts wrong in the editorial and I uploaded it straight on the Twitter and it went live. And I actually emailed it to Cheryl just to see, you know, if there's a chance you could post it on your site. And I cannot thank Cheryl enough. She's been so kind in this. You know, there were some big factual errors that were wrong in that. And, you know, Cheryl pointed them out, which is, you know, it was a right do, you know. But again, I just want to apologise to Cheryl and to John. I kind of let that loose on Twitter. And, like I say, I listened to it and I just didn't even realise. And, like I say, Jason had made some big factual errors wrong there. And Jason has, you know, straight away apologised and change you know so what you're going to hear now is the kind of corrected version so with that in mind you know what the idea was to get jason on because jason pointed out on his blog that he's seen a little bit of a change in the kind of the way the stories are coming out you know in these nebula awards you know and i thought that would be a nice little add-on to you know starship sofa's push to get recognized to go up against for the hugos <laughs> Jason Sanford here. Tony asked me to stop by Starship Sofa and ramble a bit about how we're seeing generational change in the speculative fiction world with the recent Nebula Award finalist. To top it all off, I'm going to mention why the Sofa deserves your nomination for a Best Fanzine Hugo. Now, before we get started, you should know I'm a bit biased. First off, I love Starship Sofa, which has been kind enough to broadcast my stories. Also, Tony is right now working on an upcoming broadcast of my novella Sublimation Angels, which is a finalist for this year's Nebula. If you think any of that makes me incapable of rambling about the awards, and believe me, I can ramble with the best of them, I suggest you fast forward right now. Anyway, I'm really excited about this year's finalist. 
This is one of the strongest Nebula final ballots in years, due in great part to the new nominating rules. Under the old rules, members of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America could recommend large numbers of works for the preliminary ballot, and all these recommendations were made publicly. This encouraged what we call log rolling, where members recommended each other's stories instead of the works they enjoyed most. The new rule simplified everything by limiting members to five nominations per category, meaning members couldn't waste nominations on log rolling, and by making nominations private, meaning members couldn't verify log rolling. The result, a vast number of new authors making the final ballot for the first time. Some of these writers are established best-selling authors like John Scalzi and Jeff Vandermeer. Others, like Saladin Ahmed and N.K. Jemison, are brand new authors, with Ahmed only publishing his first stories last year. Among the others I'm excited to see on the ballot are Yuji Foster, Sherry Priest, Rachel Swirsky, Ted Kosmatka, Will McIntosh, along with a few authors who have been nominated before without winning, such as Kids Johnson and Paolo Bacigalupi, who, by the way, is nominated for his novel The Wind-Up Girl which is the best science fiction novel of 2009 and a book you must read. There is no common thread to these new authors. They work across a vast array of genre archetypes and styles. In fact, the only thing that they have in common is that they represent the future of the speculative fiction genre. These are the authors you will be reading in the coming decades. And that's the generational change I mentioned earlier. Except this change isn't floating around willy-nilly in the air. It's change ready to smack you in the face and force you to read some great speculative fiction. In many ways, this year's Nebula Ballot is following in the footsteps of the Hugo Awards, which, being the more open of the two major speculative fiction awards, at least as with regards to how nominations are made, has in recent years recognized many of the writers now making the Nebula Ballot. Which brings me to the last part of my ramblings, Starship Sofa and the best fanzine Hugo. There are many good reasons for nominating the Sofa, put forth by far better writers than myself, so I'm not going to rehash their arguments. However, I do want to respond to something I read the other day, a comment from a longtime science fiction fan on how Starship Sofa wasn't a true fanzine and so shouldn't be nominated. Let me tell you about fanzines. They are rather simple. Fanzines are publications produced by non-professionals out of a love for the speculative fiction genre. Doesn't matter if the fanzine is mimeographed, Xeroxed, printed, collated, stapled, websited, online, tweeted, or podcast. A fanzine is a fanzine. Simple as that. According to the best fanzine Hugo rules, Starship Sofa is clearly a fanzine. And according to the essence of what a fanzine is, the sofa again qualifies. But I understood where this fan was coming from and not seeing the sofa as a true fanzine. To him, a fanzine is a mimeographed publication sent through the mail as a means of connecting genre fans in the days before the fax machine, the internet, cell phones, texting, Facebook, Twitter, and need I go on. The point is, technology changes. In 2004, Emerald City, edited by Cheryl Morgan, won the best fanzine Hugo. They were the first online fanzine to win the award, but it took a full decade after the launch of the internet for an online fanzine to do this. Last year, Electric Velocipede also won the best fanzine, Hugo. This is notable because while Electric Velocipede is primarily a print magazine, they also publish a very good online edition. While some other fanzines, like Dave Langford's Ansible and File 770, also cross-publish on the web, most do not do so solely on their own website. While a number now take advantage of the great site eFanzines.com, 
in my opinion, that doesn't fully take the place of a fanzine having a very good individual website. I've often wondered why so few online magazines win the best fanzine Hugo. I've heard from some people that they feel it is unfair for an online magazine to compete against traditional fanzines. Similar arguments are raised when online fan writers compete for the related best fan writer Hugo. While the issue is obviously more complicated than that, it does seem the arguments against Starship Sofa can be boiled down to, because it is a podcast, it isn't fair to compete against traditional fanzines. If you believe this argument, nothing I can say will change your mind. But do note that online is where today's fans meet and talk and share their love of speculative fiction. While I respect the fanzines of old, this is 2010, and the fanzines which are doing so much to build and support our genre are online magazines and podcasts like Starship Sofa. As I said earlier, change is in the air. New authors are being recognized. New voices and venues are being heard. To me, a great way to build on the amazing change demonstrated by this year's Nebula Award finalist would be to also recognize Starship Sofa for a best fanzine Hugo. The recent Nebula finalists were a sea change for a genre. Just imagine what the Sofa being a Hugo finalist would be. Forget sea change. We'd be talking cyclone. We'd be talking hurricane-level change. While that kind of change may scare some people, I'm all for it. And I think most lovers of the Sofa would feel the same. So next up we have Megan Argo with her fantastic Explained in 60 Seconds. Megan. Explained in 60 Seconds. Black Hole. Black holes are a favourite of science fiction authors everywhere, but you might notice that their properties vary depending on the needs of the plot. So what's the reality? Well, you know that everything that has mass also has a gravitational pull. It's what keeps us stuck to the fragile crust of this little planet we call home. You have a gravitational field too but a pretty small one compared to the Earth, so you generally won't find satellites orbiting your head, unless you count mosquitoes, but I digress. Everything with a gravitational pull also has an escape velocity, the speed you have to throw something in order for it to escape gravity and disappear off into the final frontier. You can think of gravity as being something like a well. The more massive the object, the deeper the well, and the faster you have to go to escape. One way to create a black hole is when the core of a really massive star collapses following a supernova explosion. If it collapses far enough, you end up with an object heavy enough that its escape velocity is so high that even light isn't fast enough to get out. And since light is the fastest thing in the known universe, if light can't get out, nothing else will either. Sometimes in science fiction, a ship dives into a black hole, flies through a wormhole and comes out somewhere exciting. Imagine for a moment that you were crazy enough to get too close. What really happens? As you fall feet first towards a black hole, the gravitational pull on your feet is greater than that on your head, so you get stretched out as you fall in, pulled more and more as you get closer and closer, in a process known as spaghettification. So if you do ever happen to find yourself on such a spaceship, take my advice and fly the other way. There you go, Megan, thank you so much. I'm really loving them, you know what I mean? And like I say, I've had some emails about them as well, so please keep bringing them in. They are fantastic, lovely little nugget gems of fun. So next up, I'm going to play you a little intro by the author of Snatch Me Another. Hello, I'm Mercurio Rivera, the author of Snatch Me Another, the story you're about to hear. My fiction has appeared in a number of markets most notably the British magazine Inner Zone, which has published five of my SF stories. And I have a story in the latest issue of the magazine, and in next month's issue as well. 
I'm also an assistant editor at Sybil's Garage Magazine, which, by the way, is currently open for submissions. Um, Snatch Me Another was inspired by an earlier story I had written entitled Dear Annabelle's, uh, which appeared in issue 1718 of Electric Velocipede. In Dear Annabelle's, the world as we know it has been transformed by a new piece of a new piece of technology, a snatcher, that allows you to grab objects from alternate dimensions. That story consisted of a series of very mundane, at least initially very mundane, letters to an advice column named Dear Annabelle. Each letter to this advice column told a very specific story about ordinary everyday problems in a setting in which this snatching technology exists as a possible solution. Through these series of tiny snapshots, the reader gets a global view of this transformed world. When I finished Dear Annabelle's, I was inspired to take one of those letters about a couple having problems with their child's birthday party and to expand it into a, a full-fledged short story. That story became Snatch Me Another. I am extremely lucky that I happen to be in part of an outstanding writer's group, Ultra Fluid, who saw the first draft of the story and gave me some terrific suggestions for improvements. Also, occasionally, we have guest editors who sit in on our meetings, and the week that I submitted a first draft of Snatch Me Another, we had one of the preeminent editors in our field, uh, Ellen Datlow, sitting in. So I also uh, benefited from her input as well on the story. Uh, Snatch Me Another first appeared at Abyss and Apex and was reprinted in Rich Horton's year-end anthology, Unplugged, the web's uh, best science fiction fantasy stories, Download 2008, by Worm Publishing. The story received an honorable, an honorable mention in Gardner Duzois' year's best science fiction anthology and also appeared on the Locust Recommended list for 2008, finishing at number 25 in the short story category uh, for, the story, for all the stories published that year. It was also acknowledged on the Story South Million Writers list for 2008. I hope you enjoy it. Snatch Me Another by Mercurio de Rivera, read by Liz Mirzieski. Lindy sat in her compact pickup truck, took a deep whiff of In Bliss, and tossed aside the spent plastic inhaler. She rested her forehead against the cold steering wheel. A blue-tinted circular portal the size of a manhole cover opened up over the passenger seat, and a thin, bare arm descended from it. She recognized the limb's freckled, pale skin, the small scar on the inner wrist. It was her own arm. It groped blindly until it grabbed the inhaler, then retracted. The portal disc closed with a pop. "'Ah, take it,' Lindy muttered. "'It's empty anyway.' She stared at the front door of her red-brick colonial. The buzz started to kick in, and calmness fell over her like a warm shawl. She left the truck door open and staggered down the gravel path and up the porch stairs. Lindy jammed her hand into the pocket of her jeans, fumbling for the house key. As she stood on the welcome mat, she heard the television blasting, frenetic munchkins singing, Follow the Yellow Brick Road, and the white noise of chattering children. She stabbed at the keyhole and missed three times, but the door swung open. Mommy, Tommy said. He wore a bright blue birthday hat over his patch of curly red hair. Look what I got. He held up two identical G.I. Joe dolls. For a second, Lindy felt nothing but pure love. But then the glow faded to a muted sadness. That's nice, dear, she mumbled. Go, go play with your friends. 
She stepped around him through the throng of shouting six-year-olds beyond the swinging door that led from the shag-carpeted living room to the bright kitchen. She leaned against the formica counter to regain her balance. Christina sat at the table, scooping strawberry ice cream onto white paper plates. She paused, blew a dangling strand of brown hair out of her eyes, and glanced at Lindy warily. "'Nice of you to show up,' Christina said. "'Tommy's been asking for you.' "'How did she slip back into the role of house mom without missing a goddamn beat?' Lindy thought. "'How could it be so easy for her?' "'Are you okay?' Christina asked. "'Just peachy.' We, we need some more plates. Could you snatch me some? Christina grabbed a dirty paper dish with a curly-cued happy birthday emblazoned on it, tore off a clean edge, and handed her the slip of cardboard. Lindy took long, deep breaths. Are you sure you're okay? Christina said. She snorted her assent. <laughs> Why wouldn't I be? It's a party. Let's wear our hats and sing happy birthday until our throats hurt. And let's not forget to pin the tail on the goddamn donkey. Christina looked away and continued scooping ice cream out of the frosty carton. Clutching the sliver of cardboard, Lindy lurched through the doorway that led from the kitchen into the garage. The snatcher sat next to the washing machine. Wide-mouthed and waist-high, it resembled a barrel with a glistening silver coating. If it didn't weigh so much, if it weren't so sturdy, she would have kicked the goddamn thing on its side and taken an axe to it. But what difference would it have made... Over the past six months, the black market had exploded. With a single phone call to Senecal, Christina could have it replaced within 24 hours. Lindy lifted the heavy metal lid and leaned in, placing the piece of the paper plate, the honing sample, at the bottom of the snatcher. She placed the cover back on and rotated a red dial on the device's side. Then she heard the familiar rumbling and bushing deep inside it, like distant thunder and violent wind gusts, the sound of dimensional walls crumbling. Lindy lifted the cover. The snatcher's maw released a thick blue mist. She rolled up her sleeve and bent down, sticking her arm in up to her shoulder, groping blindly until she felt the paper plate. She pulled out a whole white plate with the same orange-lettered happy birthday on it. Placing and removing the lid over and over, she continued reaching in and snatching out one after the other. Cake crumbs coated one plate, so she let it fall back through the base of the snatcher. When she reached in again, she felt someone slap her hand. She withdrew her arm and tried again until she had a dozen dishes in hand, perfect replicas, except for a single one with an off-white color. She imagined the reactions in the alternate dimensions. Ruining a few of these parties, she had to admit, albeit in different universes, wouldn't make her lose any sleep. When she returned to the kitchen... Tommy burst through the swinging door and hugged her leg. Mommy! Mommy, will you play musical chairs with us? The plates fluttered to the floor. Mommy, will you... Listen! I told you to go play with your friends, okay? She pushed past the boy and trudged up the stairs. Lindy! Christina shouted after her. She paused at the top of the staircase and looked over her shoulder. Christina crouched down and comforted the crying boy. At that moment... Lindy thought she felt something again, the remnants of a maternal love so raw, so deep, it threatened to paralyze her, drown her. She reached into her jacket pocket for another inhaler and slammed the bedroom door behind her. One week earlier, on a chilly September morning, Lindy had leaned against a tree at the summit of a grassy hill 
while Father DeMichael delivered a prayer over the white oak casket, which lay wrapped in red roses and white tulips. Across from her, on the other side of the casket, Christina stood between her mother and a second Father DeMichael, who held her hand and bowed his head. No one could distinguish the original Joseph E. DeMichael, the one who had counseled Christina all her life, from the one pulled over from another reality. Lindy shivered. She'd heard rumors of people crossing over, but she'd never seen these variants before. A dozen colleagues from the car shop where Lindy worked surrounded them. Half stared at the casket, while the other half raised their eyebrows and whispered to each other, gawking at the two Father DeMichaels. Lindy turned her attention to Christina. During their intimate moments together, Lindy always playfully referred to Christina's simple girl-next-door looks as domestic sexiness. But on this day, Christina's blank, bloodshot eyes peered out from behind her tangled and unwashed hair. Until that moment, Lindy hadn't noticed her pallid face had a too thoughtful expression, a look with just a slight hint of madness. At home, she'd remained mute and blank-faced on the prescribed inhalers they were both taking, sleepwalking through her daily routines. A blue circular portal appeared in midair over the coffin, and a long, bare arm reached down and plucked away a white tulip. Everyone pretended it hadn't happened. The father to Michael presiding over the service cleared his throat and continued with the prayer. Lindy gazed up at two enormous looming thunderclouds that seemed identical, with just a slit of blue sky separating them. Both appeared thick and dark gray. She focused, trying to detect a difference in the cloud's size or shape or respective shades of gray, with no success as they converged. A light drizzle began to fall. Umbrellas sprouted up around her. She continued looking skyward, enjoying the feel of the cold rain on her face. After the last of the children left the party and Christina came to bed, Lindy went into the bathroom and inhaled more in bliss. She tried to maintain her equilibrium as she wobbled back to the bed. Christina lay there with the pillow propped up against her back, her reading glasses on the edge of her nose, rifling through the newspaper. Did you kiss Tommy goodnight? Lindy didn't reply. She pulled back the covers on her side of the bed and lay down. After a few minutes, Christina spoke again. Did you read today's Dear Annabelle column? Apparently someone stole a tiny fragment of Van Gogh's Starry Night. She placed the open newspaper on her lap. There are now over a thousand originals, and the prices are plummeting with each new one that's retrieved. And what did dear Annabelle have to say about this? To relax, that we're living in a brand new world and have to learn to redefine our moral boundaries. Lindy grunted. Should I call Senecal and order a starry night? We can have it delivered first thing in the morning. I suppose it's irrelevant that Senecal is an illegal dealer or that the Snatcher is illegal or that every damn thing we pull out of the Snatcher is illegal. I, I think the painting would look fabulous in the living room, centered over the sofa, don't you? Ever since we got the Snatcher, nothing seems to matter anymore. Senecal won't take the money anymore, by the way. They want unique items they can use as honing samples. Are you even listening? Lindy asked. Christina sighed and pushed her reading glasses up the bridge of her nose. Look, there's no point fighting it. Legal or not, everyone has one by now. Even cops have their own snatchers. We don't need a snatched painting. There are sometimes slight differences. Imperceptible, usually. 
Doesn't it bother you that in a thousand alternate universes, Van Gogh's original Starry Night is now missing? Why do you have to think about these things? Christina frowned. This is bigger than us. And all I know is we're losing things left and right in this house. This morning, my earrings got snatched. And just this afternoon, an arm swiped a $20 bill off my dresser. If other realities steal from us, then why shouldn't we steal from them? Plus, haven't you read the newspaper? Christina said. She lifted the paper from her lap. We now have all the simian flu vaccine we'll ever need and an endless food supply to feed the hungry. What about all the other craziness? The economic crisis. It's only been six months since the first snatcher prototype was stolen. And now everything's spinning out of control. Can't you see that? Lindy, Christina sighed and put her hand on her shoulder. But Lindy rolled over and wrapped the covers around herself. After a long pause, Lindy whispered, How'd the kids' parents react today? They seemed fine. They were just happy to see Tommy's feeling better. Don't kid yourself. They knew. They knew, and they were just being polite. Christina turned off the reading light. They lay there, back to back, in the darkness, in awkward silence, filling the air before Lindy spoke again. No starry night, okay? Christina inhaled as if to respond. Mommy? Tommy's voice squeaked from the doorway. I had a bad dream. Christina turned on the nightstand lamp and sat up. Come here, baby. Tommy ran to her, and she lifted him up on her lap. I was lost, he said, and I couldn't find you. It's okay, you're safe, she said, snuggling him. Lindy stood up and grabbed her pillow. After a few seconds, Christina said, Mommy's going to read you a story, just like she always does, so you can fall back asleep. Her eyes drilled into Lindy's. Aren't you, Mommy? Lindy nodded. Can we read Thunder Bear Adventures? Tommy asked. Honey, there's no such book with that title, Christina said. But it's my favorite one. Mommy always reads it to me. Lindy and Christina locked eyes again. When they had returned from the cemetery, Christina changed into her white nightgown, even though it was the middle of the afternoon. She hovered about the house aimlessly. And there was a lag in her responses to Lindy's questions, as if communicating via satellite. In a strange, flat voice, Christina announced she was going upstairs to take a nap. Lindy sat down on the living room sofa and turned on the news telecast. None of the stories registered. Only random words and phrases penetrated her consciousness. Snatcher. Pandemonium. Markets crashing. War. Variant. Lindy could only think of those final moments in the hospital, Tommy lying there unconscious, his head wrapped in bandages, his shallow breathing becoming labored and then raspy before finally ceasing. Given the circumstances, the surgeon's inability to reach the brain tumor, the odds that they'd been given, the potent chemotherapy treatments he'd undergone, his death shouldn't have come as a surprise. But at that moment, the world had settled into a dull, steady gray, that had yet to fade. An hour later, Christina stomped down the stairs faster than she had moved the entire day, brandishing a hairbrush like a conductor's baton. What's the matter? Lindy asked. Tommy was so excited about next week's birthday party. Kool-Aid, cake, ice cream, games, okay? Friday afternoon. She continued vocalizing scattershot thoughts. Her eyes snapped left and right. Let's have the party, okay, Lindy? I 
I don't know why we never thought of it before. The solution is so obvious. She'd fallen asleep crying. Smudged tracks of mascara stained her cheeks. Let's celebrate Tommy's birthday, okay, Lindy? Okay? What are you talking about? It doesn't have to be this way. She waved her hands in the air. Honey, he's gone. Lindy swept Christina's hair back from her forehead. But he doesn't have to be. She pulled a patch of Tommy's red hair from the brush and held it between her thumb and index finger. Don't say it, Lindy said. Don't even think about it. She put her hands on Christina's shoulders and looked her in the eye. Listen to me. We'll get past this. I promise. Christina pushed her hands away and turned around, looking out the window. I'm not getting past anything. We're bringing him back. As her determination set in, her shaky voice sounded more coherent. Don't you think others have done this? The obituary column gets shorter every day. She spun around and faced her again. For his birthday, Lindy, so we can throw him the party he wanted. Black rivulets began to run down her cheeks again. What kind of parents are we? We can save him, Lindy. We can save him. How can we not? She choked on the final word and sobbed into her hands. It wouldn't be our Tommy, she replied. Although Lindy had steeled herself during Tommy's illness and the burial, she found her lower lip quivering. And we couldn't do that to another child's parents. With their snatcher, they could snatch themselves another Tommy. He's dead. That's it. Christina's face grew stern, and she paused for a long while before speaking again. Then, all at once, her grave expression melted. I'm sorry, Lindy. She sighed and collapsed on the living room couch. It's just so hard. Lindy sat down next to her. I understand. I know you're right, Christina said. I know we'll find a way to get past this. She wiped at the corner of her eyes with the sleeve of her flannel nightgown. Lindy patted her thigh. Do you want anything? Christina asked. She stood up and headed toward the swinging door to the kitchen. Lindy shook her head and stared at the framed picture on the coffee table of the three of them in Maui, she and Christina and Tommy, all in their bathing suits, sporting yellow lays and broad smiles. Tommy wore Lindy's sunglasses. She felt like an overstretched rubber band. A minute ago, she'd been on the verge of tears. But now she found herself smiling. A blue disc materialized in midair, and a tanned arm with blood-red fingernails snaked out of it. It snatched the framed photograph and retreated back into the portal. God damn it, not that picture, Lindy thought. If she'd just had another second to react, she would have stabbed the goddamn hand with a fork. A shriek cut through the silence. Lindy leapt up from the couch and ran into the kitchen. The door to the garage was wide open. No, she hadn't. Lindy thought she didn't. Lindy ran to the garage and was confronted with the sight of Christina leaning over the snatcher. She had pulled Tommy halfway out. His skin was blue-white, and he wore the navy blue suit in which they had buried him. He was unmistakably dead. Christina continued to wail. Let go! Lindy grabbed her arms. Let him go! Christina released her grip, and the cadaver dropped, disappearing into the ethereal blue mist that wafted out of the snatcher. Her hands shaking, Christina placed the metal lid back on the snatcher and then removed it again. Lindy tried to pull her away from the device, but Christina surprised her with a shove that sent her sprawling to the floor. 
Christina reached into the snatcher and soon had another variant of Tommy in her grasp, which she tugged upwards. Before long, she cradled another corpse, this one more decomposed than the first, but still outfitted in the same navy blue suit, and let out a high-pitched screech. For God's sake, stop it, Lindy said. Christina dropped the body back into the snatcher and turned the red dial on the side all the way to the right. On her third attempt, she leaned in and pulled out a red-faced Tommy clad in polka-dotted pajamas. What's happening? he screamed, slapping at her arms. Christina laughed and kissed his cheeks and hugged him tight. Tommy began to cry. It's okay, baby. Your mommies are here. Christina rocked him in her arms in an exaggerated motion. Lindy moved toward them and grabbed the boy around the waist, prying him from Christina's embrace. What are you doing? Christina said. Lindy carried him back over the mouth of the snatcher and tried to jam him back in. The boy wailed and splayed his legs, his feet catching on the sides of the snatcher. Mommy, he sobbed. He wrapped his arms around Lindy's neck. Mommy! She stopped struggling. Tommy, Lindy said. She hugged him back. Shh, shh, shh. It's okay. It's okay. As Lindy led him back to his room for the bedtime story, Tommy stopped to put on a stray birthday hat, then diverted them to the bathroom. He insisted on brushing his teeth again before going back to sleep, a classic stalling tactic for sure. But she saw no real harm in it. She held Tommy from behind while he perched on a stool and brushed his teeth, peering into the bathroom mirror. She took the toothbrush out of his left hand and moved it to his right hand. Why can't we read Thunder Bears? He drooled toothpaste into the sink when he spoke. We'll read it another night, she lied. Just pick another book. He shifted the toothbrush back into his left hand and continued brushing. Use your other hand, honey. It will be easier. But when Lindy tried to remove the toothbrush from his left hand again, he pulled away and continued brushing. No, Mommy! Lindy focused on the smooth, effortless movements as Tommy brushed up and down with his left hand. And all at once, the hairs on her arms stood on end. She had allowed herself to forget, just for a few minutes, that this boy was not her son. Tommy, her Tommy, was right-handed. She took a step backward. He rinsed and raced to his bedroom. I'll get the book! Lindy felt dizzy. Her heart raced. She needed another whiff of in-bliss. Staggering after the boy, she stood at the doorway to his bedroom. Tommy's bedroom and watched the imposter look through the books. Tommy's books on the bottom shelf. I can't find Thunder Bears, he whined. Huh? The words barely registered. Her Tommy deserved better than this, she thought. He deserved to be remembered, to be mourned. I want you to read me Thunder Bears. Look, just go to sleep, she said. You promised, he started to cry. I want Thunder Bears. For a split second, the boy stopped weeping. He winced and brought his hands to his temples. Then the bawling grew louder. What's the matter? My head hurts, he said, sobbing. Lindy gasped. Her heart pounded. She leaned back against the wall and found herself sliding to the floor. She stared up at the light fixtures on the ceiling, which were spinning, spinning. Tommy continued crying for his book, his hands on the sides of his head, until Lindy crawled over to him. She lifted him up and lay him down on the bed. Shh, it's okay, baby. Mommy's here. She held him in her arms, massaging his forehead. No, 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 she thought. We can't go through this again. Not again. 
and after a minute he cried himself to sleep. She set him down on the bed. The entire room was spinning now. She stared at her hands. They seemed to be moving independently from her body, clutching the soft pillow. She moved it an inch away from his face and held it there for a few seconds. "'What are you doing?' Christina said from the doorway. Lindy jumped to her feet, dropping the pillow. Christina's eyes widened. Her face flushed. Lindy staggered past her and down the stairs. As she opened the front door, Christina shouted from the top of the stairway, "'What were you doing?' Lindy slammed the door behind her. Lindy drove several blocks to the beach and stayed awake all night in the pickup truck, staring at the ink-black sky. Not a single star was visible behind the dark thundercloud cover. The rhythmic swoosh of the distant waves reminded her of Tommy's final raspy breaths at the hospital. She blinked and the sky suddenly grayed. A sickly dawn had arrived, illuminating the garbage-strewn sands. She drove back home and parked at the curbside. After half an hour, she found the energy to sleepwalk down the gravel pathway to the porch of their house. Ice cold. Numb. What had she almost done? Christina would forgive her anything, she always thought. But this? As Lindy moved past the living room window, she caught a glimpse of two figures inside. There, on the couch, watching cartoons, lay Tommy. And Christina sat next to him. Van Gogh's starry night hung in the wall behind them. And all at once a tremendous wave of relief washed over her, as if yesterday had been nothing more than a drug-induced nightmare, and today she'd been slapped awake to a brand new shiny reality. Maybe Christina felt the same way. Maybe they could both find a way to get past this. This time she thought the doctors would catch the tumor early. This time he'd be okay. She'd be a good mother to him. Lindy now knew she'd somehow find a way to adjust to accept the new Tommy as her own. Dear Annabelle was right. They lived in a different world now. As she walked toward the front door, Lindy got a full view of the living room. Her heart froze. A third person, a woman, sat next to Christina, thigh against thigh, laughing along with them. The woman got up and walked behind the couch and tickled Tommy from behind, catching him off guard. As Tommy squealed, Christina also shrieked with laughter. The woman was Lindy. Lindy stepped back from the window and staggered down the walkway. She tripped and fell to her knees, crawling to the pickup truck. There she fumbled for the inhaler in the glove compartment and took a hit. The sky, the world, was spinning. And as a quietude gradually enveloped her, she imagined an outstretched arm appearing in midair, white and smooth and smelling of Christina's perfume, reaching down to take her hand and pull her up through a patch of cobalt blue sky to a different place a place where she belonged. She took another deep whiff. And there you go. Mercurio, thank you so much for that. That was a fantastic story. Hopefully we'll get some more of your work on Starship Sofa. Don't forget, copyright is Mercurio Rivera. And Liz, what a fantastic narration. Thank you so much. There is more narrations by Liz coming soon. Next up is Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Amy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into the history of the genre. Today's subject is 
almost too cool for words, but I'm going to do my best to put words to it. I'd like to discuss a pioneer of proto-science fiction. This individual was a noted scientist and used science to inform both poetry and fiction. So, a scientist, a poet, and a novelist, a triple threat, impressive even today. Even more impressive because this was the 17th century. And even more impressive because this individual was a woman. The first woman, not in her adulthood, not in her lifetime, but in her entire century to have published multiple books on natural philosophy. I am speaking of the audacious Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle upon Tyne, who was born in 1623 and who died in 1673. She was an English aristocrat and a writer of many different kinds of works, including letters, speeches or orations, and plays. But there are several things of note in her career that draw the special attention of the science fiction fan. In a time when it simply wasn't done, she published works under her own name. And in a time when women definitely were not allowed into meetings of the British Royal Philosophical Society, she was invited and given membership because of the strength of her scientific works. She was deeply influenced by the classic Stoic philosophers, and her works led her to rub elbows with and trade ideas with philosophers of her day such as Robert Boyle, René Descartes, and Thomas Hobbes. Some of her very far-sighted views seem progressive today, but at the time they were downright radical. For example, she wrote that the wit of men and of women were identical. And the only difference between the two was the difference in the availability of education. In other words, men weren't naturally smarter than women, but they were more learned because they had the opportunity to pursue education where women did not. And so she championed women's rights and could be considered an early feminist. She was also an advocate for animals. She opposed animal testing. Yes, animal testing goes all the way back to the 17th century and drew awareness to and criticized inhumane treatment of animals across the land. She was taken seriously by some of the greatest minds of her era, but not all. Samuel Pepys, for example, called her mad, conceited, and ridiculous. Others criticized her for her sheer productivity saying that she wrote too much. To these critics, she said that writing was a noble disease, one that she shared with great minds from Aristotle to Augustine, and if it was good enough for them, well, it certainly was good enough for her. I don't know about you, but I'd say Margaret Cavendish won Critics Zero. One of the most fascinating things about her career was that she used her scientific understanding to inform her other literary pursuits. This led her to a number of interesting things. One, for our purposes, particularly interesting, the development of what you might consider a subgenre, atomic poetry. Yes, I said atomic poetry. For example, In 1653, she published a collection of poetry called Poems and Fancies. Here are the titles of some of the poems in this collection. 
to natural philosophers, a world made by atoms, the weight of atoms, what atoms make flame, and of the subtlety of motion. In other words, she was using art to relay some pretty hardcore scientific understanding for the age. She was relaying physics through verse. Here are two of my favorite poems from this collection. Again, this is 1653. The first is called "The Infinities of Matter." If all the world were a confused heap, what was beyond? For this world is not great. We find it limit half and bound, and like a ball in compass is made round. And if that matter with which the world's made be infinite, then more worlds may be said. Then infinities of worlds may we agree as well as infinities of matter be. The second is my favorite, and it's called "If Infinite Worlds, Infinite Centers." If infinities of worlds, they must be placed at such a distance as between lies waste. If they were joined close, moving about by jostling, they would push each other out. And if they swim in air. As fishes do in water, they would meet as they did go. But if the air each world doth enclose them all about, then like to water flows, keeping them equal and in order right, that as they move shall not each other strike. Or like to water wheels by water turned, so air round about those worlds do run, and by that motion they do turn about, no further. Then that motion's strength runs out, like to a bowl which will no further go, but runs according as that strength do throw. Thus, like as bowls, the worlds do turn and run, but still the jack and center is the sun. That's astronomical poetry, seventeenth-century style, before astronomical poetry was cool. If you're interested in the atomic poems of Margaret Cavendish, you can find them online in digital form from the Emory Women Writers Resource Project at womenwriters.library.emory.edu. We should probably be excited enough just to find a woman scientist in the 17th century publishing not anonymously but under her own name and publishing atomic poetry to boot. But it just gets better. In 1666, Margaret Cavendish published Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy, but she included as an appendix an entire novel, and it was a novel of proto-science fiction. The novel was called The Description of a New World, called The Blazing World. And later, in 1668, the Blazing World was published in its own right as a standalone novel. In this story, a young woman is blown pretty much to the end of the Earth, where she finds another planet adjacent to the Earth, sort of sitting on top of it, as one pearl would sit nestled next to another on a necklace. This young woman was pretty much Margaret Cavendish's ideal woman. A no-nonsense heroine with a strong scientific background. On this other world, she discovers these bear-like creatures that are also quite like humans. 
They're shaped like bears, but they walk upright like humans and use their paws as hands. On one level, she uses these characters to suggest that hey, animals are people too. On another, she uses these human-like but not human creatures to discuss all kinds of scientific theories, from molecular structure to the nature of light. The protagonist learns the bear people's language, and she spends a tremendous amount of time studying their culture. Their political system, and most importantly, their scientific knowledge. She interrogates their scientists, and then instructs them when it becomes clear that much of her own scientific understanding is superior to theirs. Cavendish uses this imaginative setting then to explore all sorts of social and political and philosophical topics, as the young heroine considers the bear people and their world. But there's also a fair degree of wish fulfillment going on, because this young lady, when she's proven to be really a fantastic scientist above everything else, is made empress of the bear people. And it's interesting to see they make her empress not because she's beautiful, not because she's skilled in all of the womanly arts of the time, but because she really is a kick-ass scientist, and they know it. And it gets even more interesting. At some point, this young lady, now empress, decides that her story is really fascinating, and she needs someone to write it down. But who? She thinks of the great minds of the time, men like Descartes and Hobbes, men I should point out that Margaret Cavendish knew personally. But she decides that none of them would work as her secretary because, quote, they're so self-conceited. They would scorn to be the scribes to a woman. So Cavendish works in a little dig, a personal dig, at the chauvinism of her contemporaries. So again, this fictional heroine says, "Who can write my story?" And she comes up with, you guessed it, Margaret Cavendish herself. The author writes herself as a character right into the story. The character Margaret Cavendish becomes a dear friend of the Empress, and together they have a deep friendship, and they go about exploring worlds. Again, a kind of wish fulfillment, because in real life Margaret Cavendish did not have such a female patron, and did not have such fantastic adventures anywhere but in her mind. And of course, in real life, she didn't have talking bear people either. The novel is very much worth reading. For its spectacular, fantastic exploration of this remarkable world, for its very clever incorporation of science and scientific theory, and for the insights it gives into Cavendish's own time and the political and social and cultural realities that she faced, once again, science fiction proves adept. Not only at asking fantastical what-if questions, but also at delivering very shrewd critiques of the contemporary life and times of the author. I am very happy to say that the description of the new world called the Blazing World by Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle, is now available online at the Celebration of Women Writers at. The University of Pennsylvania's digital library, 
at digital.library.upenn.edu/women. And this ends my discussion of Margaret Cavendish, pioneering woman scientist, atomic poet, and proto-science fiction novelist. The next time on Starship Sofa that you hear a great work of science fiction poetry or a story with biting social critique and visionary implementation of science, just remember this is a tradition that goes all the way back to the 17th century. And the artists are walking through doors that were opened by individuals like Margaret Cavendish. I look forward to talking to you again soon with another look back at genre history. Thank you. Amy, you're a star. Month in, month out, thank you so much. You are one of the dilithium crystals that keep this place going. <laughs> thank you so much. Next up is a little intro by our good friend, Larry Santoro. Larry, who are you talking about? This is Larry Santoro, Unbidden, and this is just off the top of my pretty little head. And I wanted to say a few words about C.M. Kornbluth, or Kornblut, depending on your level of fussiness. I cut my uh, science fiction teeth reading this guy in dark burger shops and other after-school hangouts, uh, sneaking reads from the rack when I should have been doing more important things. And I, I sometimes didn't know... It was he, or more properly them, as the case frequently was, because he frequently worked with other people, Fred Pohl in particular. Uh, one of the first things I remember of his was Gunner Cade, serialized in the uh, John Campbell era, astounding science fiction magazine. Uh, I believe my mother distrusted anything she found in my possession that fancied itself as astounding or amazing. So I had to content myself with reading these things on the sly, which was all right since my 25 cents per week allowance wouldn't let me actually buy the things anyway without some savage savings on my part. Uh, cutting Saturday matinees, for example, entirely from the budget, and that was not to be. I think astounding cost 35 cents at the time, but then... Gunner Cade by this guy named Cyril Judd was pretty great stuff, even if read under the threat of old man Screpsy tossing me out of the shop. And I think it was then, Gunner Cade, that I started thinking how neat it would be to do that kind of stuff myself one day. Not be some kind of jump marine, no, no, but to to write about stuff like that, live it in my head and give it out to the world and have kids like me idolizing the adult me for it. It wasn't until later that I found out that Cyril Judd was really C.M. Kornblut and, cripes, Judith Merrill, a girl writing that military comrade barracks singing stuff and jumping out of spaceships and into battle. Anyway, it wasn't until later that I found that Cade wasn't all that serious a book, uh, for book it did become eventually, and which I eventually added to the permanent collection, which, excepting for some tragic losses owing to going off to college and having my mother clear out the junk and my later getting a divorce and having my ex-wife clear out the junk, has continued to this day. But Cornblute was, alas, suddenly 
dead. A, a young guy, what, he was 34, 35 maybe, dropped dead of running for a train to become the new editor at uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in a probable hypertensive response to the 20th century. What crappy luck. He was good. Now, see, for me, who'd grown old, well, beyond nine or ten years anyway, beyond Flash Gordon as done by Larry Buster Crabb, which I had loved, uh, beyond Heinlein and Rocket Ship Galileo and Farmers in the Sky, which I loved. Kornbluth was, for me, a kind of best of breed. I, I was maybe 16 at the time. He was better than Asimov, whom I loved at the time, better than Heinlein and his starship troopers, whom I loved at the time, better than so many of them. Kornbluth was funny, which I may not have realized until later. He was, damn it, witty, which form of humor I don't think I even knew existed. He was acerbic, which I couldn't even say then, much less spell. Uh, he was just the best of them all, and, and all just coming into his own. His characters were alive. His stories were as rich as Heinlein's without all the baggage. His plots were richer than Asimov's, who always seemed to be predictable. Uh, it, they seemed to be predicated on being smarter than the reader. And he was alive in a way that Arthur C. Clarke, whom I loved at the time, was contrived. And damn it, now he was dead. And then later I found out what acerbic meant and what witty was, and, and I, I guess I've never really been able to reach that high. So Kornbluth was, for me, the guy who started me off in some certain direction, which I'm still going today, and which I hope I live up to. Well, who can? Anyway... Thanks for listening, and thanks, Tony, for giving me the opportunity to read this thing. Uh haven't read it in years and years and years. I'll have to go back and take a look at some more of this stuff. See you later. The Adventurer by C.M. Cornblut, Read by Lawrence Santoro. President Folsom the Twenty-Fourth said petulantly to his Secretary of the Treasury, uh, uh, "'Blow me to hell, Bannister, if I understood a single word of that. Why can't I buy the Nicolaides collection? Don't start with the rediscount and the Series W business again. Just tell me why.' The Secretary of the Treasury said, with an air of apprehension and a thread-like feeling across his throat, well, it boils down to um, no money, Mr. President. The President was too engrossed in thoughts of the marvelous collection to fly into a rage. It is such a bargain, he said mournfully. An archaic Henry Moore figure. Really, too big to finger. But I'm no cultural snob, though, thank God. Fifteen early Morrisons. I cannot begin to tell you what else. <laughs> He looked hopefully at the Secretary of Public Opinion. Mightn't I seize it for the public good something? The Secretary of Public Opinion shook his head. His pose was gruffly professional. Mm, not a chance, Mr. President. We'd never get away with it. The art lovers would scream to high heaven. I suppose so. Why? Isn't there any money? 
He had swiveled dangerously on the Secretary of the Treasury again. Well, sir, purchase of the new Series W bond uh, has largely lagged badly because potential buyers have been attracted to... uh, Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, just stop it. You know, I can't make head nor tail out of that stuff. Now, just where is the money going? The director of the budget said cautiously, "Uh, Mr. President, during the biennium just ending, the Department of Defense accounted for 78% of expenditures, the Secretary of Defense ground. Now, just wait a minute, Felder. We were voted, the president interrupted, raging weakly. Oh, you rascals, my father would have known what to do with you, but, but don't think I can't handle it. Don't think you can hoodwink me. He punched a button ferociously. His silly face was contorted with rage, and there was a certain tension in all the faces around the cabinet table. Panels slid down abruptly in the walls, revealing grim-faced Secret Service men. Each cabinet officer was covered by at least two automatic rifles. Take that, uh, that traitor away, the president yelled. His finger pointed at the Secretary of Defense, who slumped over the table, sobbing. Two Secret Service men half carried him from the room. President Folsom, the 24th, leaned back, thrusting out his lower lip. He told the Secretary of the Treasury, "'Get me the money for the Nicolaides collection, you understand? I don't care how you do it. Just get it!' He glared at the Secretary of Public Opinion. "'Have you any comments?' "'Uh, no, Mr. President.' "'All right, then.' The President unbent and said plaintively, "'I don't see why. You you can't—' all be more reasonable. I'm a very reasonable man. I I don't see why I can't have a few pleasures along with all my responsibilities. Really, I don't. And and, and, and I'm sensitive. I don't like these scenes. Very well, that's all. That's all. Cabinet meeting. Adjourned. They rose and left silently in the order of their seniority. The president noticed that the panels were still down and pushed the button that raised them again, and hid the granite-faced secret service men. He took out of his pocket a late Morrison fingering piece and turned it over in his hand, a smile of relaxation and bliss spreading over his face. Well, such amusing textual contrast. <laughs> such unexpected variations in the classic sequences. The cabinet, less the Secretary of Defense, was holding a rump meeting in an untapped corner of the White House gymnasium. God, the Secretary of State said, white-faced, poor old Willie. The professionally gruff Secretary of Public Opinion said, yeah, we should murder the bastard. I don't care what happens. Up, the Director of Budget said dryly, well, we all know what would happen. President Folsom, 25, would take office and no, no we got to keep plugging as before. Nothing short of the invincible can topple the republic. But what about a war? The Secretary of Commerce demanded fiercely. we got no proof that our program will work. What about a war? 
State said wearily, not while there is a balance of power, my dear man. The Eo Callisto question proved that the Republic and the Soviet fell all over themselves, trying to patch things up as soon as it seemed there'd be real shooting. Folsom 24 and His Excellency Premier Yersinski know at least that much. The Secretary of the Treasury said, well, what would y'all think of, uh, say, Steiner? For defense, the director of the budget was astonished. Would he take it? Treasury cleared his throat. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, I, I've I've asked him to stop by uh, right about now. He hurled a medicine ball into the budgetary gut. Oh, said the director. You bastard. Uh, yeah, Steiner. Steiner'd be perfect. He runs standards like a watch. He treacherously fired the medicine ball at the secretary of raw materials, who blandly caught it and slammed it back. <laughs> Here he comes, said the Secretary of Raw Materials. Steiner, Steiner, come and sweat some oleo off. Steiner ambled over a squat man in his fifties and said, I don't mind if I do. Where's Willie? State said, uh, the, uh, the, the president unmasked him. As a traitor, he probably has been executed by now. Steiner looked grim. Grimmer yet, when the Secretary of the Treasury said deadpan, "'We want to propose you for defense.' Mm. "'Yeah, well, I'm happy in standards,' Steiner said. "'Safer, too. "'Man's father took an interest in science, but the man never comes round. "'Things are very quiet.' Why don't you invite Winch from the National Art Commission? It wouldn't be much of a change or the worse for him. <laughs> no brains, the Secretary of Raw Materials said briefly. Heads up! Steiner caught the ball and slugged it back at him. <sighs> well, what good are brains? he asked quietly. Close the ranks, gentlemen, State said. These long shots are too hard on my arms. Close the ranks. The ranks closed, and the cabinet told Steiner what good were brains. He ended by accepting. The moon is all republic. Mars is all Soviet. Titan is all republic. Ganymede is all Soviet. But Io and Callisto, by the Treaty of Greenwich, are half and half republic and Soviet. Down the main street of the principal settlement on Io runs an invisible line. One side of the line, the principal settlement is known as New Pittsburgh. On the other side, it is known as Nizhny Magnigatorsk. Into a miner's home in New Pittsburgh one day, an eight-year-old boy named Grayson staggered, bleeding from the head. His eyes were swollen, almost shut. His father lurched to his feet, knocking over a bottle. He looked stupidly at the bottle. He set it upright, too late to save much of the alcohol, then stared fixedly at the boy. "'See what you made me do, you little bastard!' He growled and fetched the boy a clout on his bleeding head that sent him spinning against the wall of the hut. The boy got up slowly." And silently, there seemed to be something wrong with his left arm. He glowered at his father. He said nothing. Fighting again, the father said in a would-be fierce voice. His eyes fell under the peculiar fire in the boy's stare. Damn fool! A woman came in from the kitchen. She was tall and thin. In a flat voice, she said to the man, Get out of here. 
The man hiccuped and said, "'You brat, you spilled my bottle. You give me a dollar.' In the same flat voice, "'I have to buy food.' "'I said, give me a dollar!' The man slapped her face. It did not change, and wrenched a small purse from the string that suspended it around her neck. The boy suddenly was a demon, flying at his father with fists and teeth that lasted only a second or maybe two. The father kicked him into a corner where he lay, still glaring wordlessly and dry-eyed. The mother had not moved. Her husband's handmark was still red on her face when he hulked out, clutching the money bag. Mrs. Grayson at last crouched in the corner with her eight-year-old boy. "'Little Tommy,' she said softly, "'my little Tommy, did you cross the line again?' He was blubbering in her arms, hysterically, as, as she caressed him. At least he was able to say, "'I didn't cross the line, Mom, not this time. I was, in, I was in school. They said our name was really Krasinski. God damn him!' The boy shrieked, "'God damn him!' They said his grandfather was named Krasinski, and he moved over the line and changed his name to Grayson. God damn him! Do it not to us!' Now, no, darling, his mother said, caressing. No, darling, darling. His trembling began to ebb. She said, now, let's get out the spools, Tommy. He mustn't fall behind in school. You owe that to me, don't you, darling? Yes, Mom, he said. He threw his spindly arms around her and kissed her. Get out the spools. We'll show him. I mean, them. President Folsom the twenty-fourth lay on his deathbed, feeling no pain, mostly because his personal physician had pumped him full of morphine. Dr. Barnes sat by the bed, holding the presidential wrist and waiting, occasionally nodding off and recovering with a belligerent stare around the room. The four-wire servicemen didn't care whether he fell asleep or not. They were worriedly discussing the nature and habits of the president's firstborn, who would shortly succeed to the highest office in the Republic. Nah, "'There's a firebrand, they tell me,' the AP man said unhappily. "'Firebrands, I don't mind,' the UP man said. "'He can send out all the inflammatory notes he wants just so long as he isn't a fiend for exercise. Look, I'm not as young as I once was. You boys wouldn't remember the old President Folsom 22. He used to do point-to-point -point hiking. He worshipped old FDR,' the INS man said, lowering his voice. Then he was worshipping the wrong Roosevelt. Teddy was the athlete. Dr. Barnes started, dropped the presidential wrist, held a mirror to the mouth for a moment. Gentlemen, he said, the president um, is dead. Okay, the AP man said. Let's go, boys. I'll send in the flash. UP, you go cover the College of Electors. INS, get on to the president-elect. Trib, collect some interviews and background the door opened. A colonel of infantry was standing there, breathing hard, with an automatic rifle at port. "'Is he dead?' he asked. "'Uh, yes,' the AP man said. "'If you let me pass.' "'Nobody leaves the room,' the colonel said grimly. "'I represent General Slocum, acting president of the Republic. The College of Electors is now acting to ratify—' A burst of gunfire caught the colonel in the back. He spun, he fell, with a single hoarse cry. More gunfire sounded through the White House. A Secret Service man ducked his head through the door. "'President's dead. You boys, stay put. We'll have this thing cleaned up in an hour.' He vanished." 
The doctor sputtered his alarm, and the newsman ignored him with professional poise. The AP man asked, "'Now, who's Slocum? Defense Command?' INS said, I remember him. He's three stars. He headed up the tactical airborne force out in Kansas uh, four or five years ago. I think he was retired since then. A phosphorus grenade crashed through the window and exploded with a globe of yellow flame the size of a basketball. Dense clouds of phosphorus pentoxide gushed from it. The sprinkler system switched on, drenching the room. Come on, come on, hacked the AP man, and they scrambled from the room and slammed the door. The doctor's coat was burning in two or three places. He was retching feebly on the corridor floor. They tore off his coat, flung it back into the room. The U.P. man, swearing horribly, dug a sizzling bit of phosphorus from the back of his hand with a penknife and collapsed, sweating, when it was out. The INS man passed him a flask, and he gurgled down half-pint of liquor. "'Who flang that brick?' he asked faintly. "'Nobody.' the A.P. man said gloomily. That is the hell of it, guys. None of this is happening. Just the way Taft, the pretender, never happened in 03. Just the way the Pentagon mutiny never happened in 67. 68, the U.P. man said faintly. It didn't happen in 68, not 67. The A.P. man smashed a fist into the palm of his hand, swore, God damn it! Someday I'd like to... He broke off and was bitterly silent. The U.P. man must have been a little dislocated with shock and, and quite drunk to talk the way he did. <laughs> Me too, he said. like to tell the story. Maybe it was 67, not 68. I am not sure now. Can't write it down so the details get lost. And then after a while, it, it didn't happen at all. Revolution would be a good deal, but it takes people to make revolution people with eyes and ears and memories we make things not happen we make people not see not hear he slumped back against the corridor wall nursing his burned hand the others were watching him very scared then the ap man caught sight of the secretary of defense striding down the corridor flanked by secret service men "'Mr. Steiner,' he called. Uh, "'What's the picture?' Steiner stopped, breathing heavily, and said, "'Well, Slocum's barricaded in the Oval Study. They, "'They don't want to smash it in. "'He's about the only one left. "'There were only fifty or so. "'The acting president's taken charge at the study. Uh, "'You want to come along?' "'They did, and even hauled the U.P. man after them. "'The acting president, who would be President Folsom the 25th, "'as soon as the Electoral College got around to it, "'had his father's face, the petulant lip, the soft jowl, "'and a hard, young body. "'He also had an auto-rifle ready to fire from the hip. "'Most of the cabinet was present. "'When the Secretary of Defense arrived, he turned on him. "'Steiner,' he said nastily, "'can you explain why there should be a rebellion against the Republic in your department?' Uh, "'Mr. President,' Steiner said, "'Slocum was retired on my recommendation two years ago. "'It seems to me that my responsibility ended there, "'and security should have taken over.' "'The President-elect's finger left the trigger of the auto-rifle, "'and his lip drew in a little. Mm, yeah, "'Quite so,' he said curtly, turned to the door. "'Slocum!' he shouted. "'Come out of there!' We can use the gas if we want. The door opened unexpectedly, and a tired-looking man with three stars on each shoulder stood there barehanded. 
All right, all right, he said drearily. I was fool enough to think something could be done about the regime, but you fat-faced imbeciles are... You're going on and on and on. The, the stutter of the auto-rifle cut him off. The president-elect's knuckles were white as he clutched the piece's forearm and grip. The torrent of slugs continued to hack and plow the general's body until the magazine was empty. Burn that, he said, curtly turning his back on it. Dr. Barnes, come here. I want to know about my father's passing. The doctor, hoarse and red-eyed from the whiff of phosphorus smoke, spoke with him. The U.P. man had sagged drunkenly into a chair, but the other newsmen noted that Dr. Barnes glanced at them as he spoke in a confidential murmur. "'Thank you, doctor,' the president-elect said at last decisively. He gestured to a Secret Service man. "'Take those traitors away.' They went numbly. The Secretary of State cleared his throat. <clears throat> Mr. President, he said, I take this opportunity to submit the resignations of myself and fellow cabinet members according to custom. That's all right, the President-elect said. May as well stay on. I intend to run things myself anyway, he hefted the auto rifle. You, he said to the Secretary of Public Opinion, you have some work to do. Have the memory of my father's artistic preoccupations obliterated as soon as possible. I wish the Republic to assume a, a, a warlike posture. Yes, what is it? A trembling messenger said. Uh, Mr. Mr. President, I have the honor to inform you that the College of Electors has elected you President of the Republic unanimously. Cadet Fourth Classman Thomas Grayson lay on his bunk and sobbed in an agony of loneliness. The letter from his mother was crumpled in his hand. Prouder than words can tell of your appointment to the Academy. Darling, I hardly knew my grandfather, but I know that you will serve as brilliantly as he did to the eternal credit of the Republic. You must be brave and strong for my sake. He would have given everything he had or ever could hope to have to be back with her and away from the bullying, sneering fellow cadets of the Corps. He kissed the letter and then hastily shoved it under his mattress as he heard footsteps. He popped to a brace, but it was only his roommate Ferguson. Ferguson was from Earth and rejoiced in the lighter lunar gravity, which was punishment to Grayson's Io-bred muscles. Rest, mister, Ferguson grinned. <laughs> Thought it was night inspection. Well, any minute now. They're down the hall. Look, let me tighten your bunk or you'll be in trouble. Tightening the bunk, he pulled out the letter and said calvishly, <laughs> Who's she? <laughs> and he opened it. When the cadet officers reached the room, they found Ferguson on the floor, being strangled black in the face by spidery little Grayson. It took all three of them to pull him off. Ferguson went to the infirmary, and Grayson went to the commandant's office. The Commandant glared at the cadet from under the most spectacular pair of eyebrows in the service. "'Cadet Grayson,' he said, "'explain what occurred.' "'Sir, Cadet Ferguson began to read a letter from my mother without my permission, sir.' "'Well, that is not accepted by the Corps as grounds for mayhem. Do you have anything further to say?' "'Sir, I lost my temper. All I thought of was that it was an act of disrespect to my mother and somehow to the Corps and the Republic, too, that Cadet Ferguson was dishonoring the Corps, sir.' Bushwash, the commander thought. Snow job. And a crude one. He studied the youngster. He'd never seen such a brace from an Io-bred fourth-classman. It must be torture to muscles not yet toughened up to even lunar gravity. Five minutes more and the boy would have to give way. 
Serve him right for showing off. He studied Grayson's folder. It was too early to tell about academic work, but the fourth-classman was a bear, or a fool, for extra duty. He'd gone out for a half-dozen teams and applied for membership in the exacting math club and writing club. The commandant glanced up. Grayson was still in his extreme brace. The commandant suddenly had the queer idea that Grayson could hold it until it killed him. One hundred hours of pack drill, he barked, to be completed before quarter term. Cadet Grayson, if you succeed in walking off your tours, remember that there is a tradition of fellowship in the Corps which its members are expected to observe. Dismiss. After Grayson's steel-sharp salute and exit, the Commandant dug deeper into the folder. Apparently there was something wrong with the boy's left arm, but it had been passed by the examining team that visited Io. Most unusual. Most irregular. Huh. Well, nothing can be done about it now. The President... "'Softer now in body than on his election day, "'and infinitely more cautious, snapped. "'It's all very well to create an incident, "'but where's the money to come from? "'Who wants the rest of I.O. anyway? "'And what will happen if there's a war?' "'Treasury said. Uh, "'The hoarders will supply the money, Mr. President, "'a system of percentage bounties "'for persons who report currency hoarders, "'then enforced purchase of a bond issue. "'Raw materials said. "'We need that iron, Mr. President. "'We need it desperately.' State said, All our evaluations indicate that the Soviet Premier would consider nothing less than armed invasion of his continental borders as an occasion for all-out war. The Consumer Goods Party in the Soviet has, has gained immensely during the past five years, and, and, of course, their armaments have suffered. Your shrewd directive to put the Republic in a warlike posture has borne fruit, Mr. President. President Folsom, 25, studied them narrowly. To him... The need for a border incident culminating in a forced purchase of Soviet I.O. did not seem as pressing as they thought, but they were, after all, specialists, and there was no conceivable way they could benefit from it personally. The only alternative was that they were offering their professional advice and that it would be best to heed it still. Still, there was a vague, nagging something... Nonsense, he decided. The spy dossiers on his cabinet showed nothing but the usual. One had been blackmailed by an actress after an affair and railroaded her off the earth. Another had a habit of taking bribes to advance favorite sons in civil and military service and so on. The Republic could not suffer at their hands, and the Republic and the dynasty were impregnable. He simply spied on everybody, including the spies, and ordered summary executions well, often enough to show that you meant it, and kept the public ignorant, deaf, dumb, blind, ignorant. The spy system was simplicity itself. You had only to let things get tangled and confused as much as possible until nobody knew who was who. The executions were literally no problem for guilt or innocence made no matter, and mind control when there were four newspapers, six magazines, three radio and television stations was a job for a handful of clerks. No, no, the cabinet couldn't be getting away with anything. The system, the system was unbeatable. President Folsom, the 25th, said, Very well, have it done. 
Mrs. Grayson, widow of New Pittsburgh, Io, disappeared one night. It was in all the papers and on all the broadcasts. Sometime later, she was found dragging herself back across the line between Nizhny Magnogotorsk and New Pittsburgh in sorry shape. She had a terrible tale to tell about what she had suffered at the hands and, and, and so forth of the Nizhny Magnogotorskniks. A, a diplomatic note from the Republic to the Soviet was answered by another note, which was answered by the dispatch of the Republic's first fleet to Io, which was answered by the dispatch of the Soviet's first and fifth fleets to Io. The Republic's first fleet blew up the customary deserted target. Hulk fulminated over a sneak sabotage attack and moved in its destroyers. Battle was joined. Ensign Thomas Grayson took over the command of his destroyer when its captain was killed on his bridge. An electrified crew saw the strange, brooding youngster perform prodigies of skill and courage and responded to them. In one week of desultory action... The battered destroyer had accounted for seven Soviet destroyers and a cruiser. As soon as this had penetrated to the flagship, Grayson was decorated and given a flotilla. His weird magnetism extended to every officer and man aboard the seven craft. They struck like phantoms, cutting out cruisers and battle wagons and wild, unorthodox actions that couldn't have succeeded, but did every time. Grayson was badly wounded twice, but his driving nervous energy carried him through. He was decorated again, given the battle wagon of an ailing force striper, and without orders he touched down on the Soviet side of Io, led out a landing party of Marines and Blue Jackets, cut through two regiments of Soviet infantry, and returned to his battle wagon with prisoners, the top civil and military administrators of Soviet Io. They discussed him nervously aboard the flagship. He has a mystical quality, Admiral. His men would follow him into an atomic furnace, and, and, and I almost believe he could bring them through safely if he wanted to. <laughs> the laugh was nervous. He doesn't look like much, but when he turns on that charm, watch out. He's... He's a winner, now, I wonder what I mean by that. Well, I know what you mean. They turn up, ever so often, people who can't be stopped, people who have everything, Napoleons, Alexanders, Stalins, up from nowhere, <laughs> Suleiman, Hitler, Folsom I, Genghis Khan. Well, let's get it over with. They tugged at their gold-braided jackets and signaled the honor guard. Grayson was piped aboard, received another decoration, and another speech, and this time he made a speech in return. President Folsom, 25, not knowing what else to do, had summoned his cabinet. Well, he rasped at the Secretary of Defense. Steiner said with a faint shrug, Mr. President, there is nothing to be done. He has the fleet. He has the broadcasting facilities. He has the people. The people! snarled the president, the people. His finger stabbed at a button in the wall panel, snapped down to show the Secret Service men standing in their niches. The finger shot tremulously out at Steiner. Kill that traitor, he raved. The chief of the detail said uneasily, Mr. President, we were uh, listening uh, to Grayson before we came on duty. He says he's de facto president. Now, kill him! Kill him! The chief went doggedly on, and frankly... 
we liked what he had to say about the Republic, and he said, citizens of the Republic shouldn't take orders from you, and he'd relieved you. The president fell back. Grayson walked in, wearing his plain ensign's uniform and smiling faintly. Admirals and four-stripers flanked him. Chief of the details said, Mr. Grayson, are you taking over? The man in the ensign's uniform said gravely, Yes, and just call me Grayson, please. The titles come later. You can go now. The chief gave a pleased grin and collected his detail. The rather slight youngish man who had something wrong with one arm was in charge, complete charge. Grayson said, Mr. Folsom, you are relieved of the presidency. Captain, take him out and... He finished with a whimsical shrug. The portly four-striper took Folsom by one arm. Like a drugged man, the deposed president let himself be let out. Grayson looked around the table. "'Who are you, gentlemen?' They felt his magnetism, like the hum when you pass a power station. Steiner was the spokesman. "'Grayson,' he said soberly, "'we were Folsom's cabinet. However, there is more that we have to tell you. Alone, if you will allow it.' "'Very well, gentlemen.' Admirals and captains backed out, looking concerned. Steiner said, "'Grayson, this story goes back many years. My predecessor, William Malvern, determined to overthrow the regime, holding that it was an affront to the human spirit. There have been many such attempts. All have broken up on the rocks of espionage, terrorism, and opinion control, the, the three weapons which the regime holds firmly in its hands.' Malvern tried another approach than espionage versus espionage, terrorism versus terrorism, and opinion control versus opinion control. He determined to use the basic fact that certain men make history, that there are men born to be mold-breakers. They are the Philips of Macedon, the Napoleons, Stalins, and Hitlers, the Sulemans, the adventurers— Again and again, they flash across history, bringing down ancient empires, turning ordinary soldiers of the line into unkillable demons of battle, uprooting cultures, breathing a new life into moribund peoples. There are common denominators among all the adventurers. Intelligence, of course. Uh, other things are more mysterious, but are always present. Uh, uh, they're foreigners. Napoleon, the Corsican, Hitler, the Austrian, Stalin, the Georgian, Philip, the Macedonian. They're always there is an Oedipus complex. Always there is physical deficiency. Napoleon's stature, Stalin's withered arm, and yours. Always there is minority disability, real or fancied. This this is a shock to you, Grayson, but, but you must face it. You were manufactured. Malvern packed the cabinet with the slyest double-dealers he could find, and they went to work. Eighty-six infants were planted in the outposts of the Republic in simulated family environments. Your mother was not your mother, but one of the most brilliant actresses ever to drop out of sight on Earth. Your intelligence heredity was so good that we couldn't turn you down for a lack of a physical deficiency. We withered your arm. I'm afraid, with gamma radiation. I, I hope you will forgive us. There was no other way. Of the 86, you 
or the one that worked. Somehow the combination for you was minutely different from all the other combinations genetically or environmentally, and it worked. That is all we were after. The mold has been broken. You know now what you are. Let come whatever chaos is to come. The dead hand of the past no longer lies on... Grayson went to the door and beckoned. Two captains came in. Steiner broke off his speech as Grayson said to them, These men deny my godhood. Just take them out and... uh, He finished with a whimsical shrug. Yes, your divinity the captain said, without a trace of humor in their voices. There you go. Larry, thank you so much for that. That's a great narration. And, you know, I can't thank C.M. Cornbluth personally, but I think what Larry said in that little introduction was perfect. Larry, again, thank you so much. So that is this week's show, and that is this month's Here and Now. I hope you enjoyed it. Do please come over and participate in and put the vote in, just to find out which one you do prefer. Is it CM Cornbluth, or is it Mercurio Rivera? It would be nice to find out. And I just want to thank everyone who's contributed to the end of day show. You know what I mean? Like I say, this show wouldn't get put together if it wasn't for everyone. You know, so I am like deeply humbled by everyone's just helping out and mugging in there. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in next week's show. Next week's show is the Starship Sofa Interrogations. This is where I ask the 15 questions to a science fiction writer and we listen to their answers. The idea is, as I explained with the Lucius Shepard, 15 questions. I ain't going to change them 15 questions, and it's up to the science fiction writer to answer those questions however he or she would like. But next week, what I want to do is, because after those 15 questions, I like to kind of carry on and just keep, you know, it's a nice excuse to talk to some of these kind of writers. And the intention is, this, like the after interview little bit, is I'm going to put that, start putting that in the sanatorium feed as like a little thank you to everyone who kind of donated into the show. You know, it's primarily them people that are kind of making the show survive with the kind of month-in, month-out donations. You know, I really do appreciate that. And I want to just give something back, you know, a little bit more back. And my intention is to put these other parts of the interview in there. But what I want to do next week is play the full interview. You know, And I think it comes on for probably 45, 50 minutes. And it's with none other than science fiction legend that is Gene Wolfe. So I hope you kind of appreciate what, you know, I'm, I'm, like I say, I'm going to give all this kind of interview away, but the idea is to kind of, the bit that, I, the afterwards talk is going to go in the sanatorium feed, and what I'm aiming for is to, you know, bring some more people into the kind of sanatorium shows, you know what I mean? It certainly helps out to know that, you know, that's the kind of bedrock that Starship Sofa survives on. So if you want to hear some more interviews, you know, I've, I've got ones lined up, I've had some great interviews that have been done already and, and ready to go. Pat Carrigan, you know, and in the afterward talk, we talked about Heinlein and all sorts of stuff like that. You know, I've done Christine Catherine Rush. 
There's lots coming up on this Starship Sova's interrogations, and I'm really quite proud of these questions, you know what I mean? I asked what the idea was, I asked everybody in the kind of science fiction community, I got a lot of questions back and put them down in those 15 questions. So do look out for the full interview next week with Gene Wolfe. Honestly, what a lovely time, like I say. I've interviewed a few people there now, but you know, the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up with this man. He is just fantastic. So look out for that coming next week. I would just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Story Sofa. Activation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.